Welcome to Socially Distant, Spiritually Close, a podcast dedicated to exploring the biggest spiritual questions of this complex and challenging moment. I'm your host, Rabbi Michael Knopf. Once upon a time, there was a king who possessed the unique ability to read the stars and discern the future. One night, while gazing at the stars, the king learned a shocking piece of news. All of the produce harvested that year would cause madness in anyone who ate it. The king summoned his beloved vizier and gave him this grim report. What advice do you have, the king asked the vizier. The vizier replied that enough food should be set aside so that the two of them would not have to eat any of the tainted harvest. But the king answered, if we alone from among the whole world are not mad, and everyone else is, then we are the ones who will be considered madmen. Therefore, we too must eat of the harvest. However, let us place signs on our foreheads so that we shall at least know that we are mad. If I look at your forehead or you look at mine, we shall see the signs and know that we are madmen. When the Hasidic master, Rabbi Nachman of Bratslav, composed this brief yet heartbreaking parable in the late 18th century, he was witnessing a radical new worldview overtaking and transforming traditional Eastern European communities. The old order was crumbling and a new one was emerging in its place. Rabbi Nachman, a practitioner of the traditional ways, must have looked at his changing world and seen unbridled madness everywhere around him. Beholding this widespread insanity, he must have viewed himself as the only remaining sane person. And he also must have recognized that as the only sane man in a world mired in mass hysteria, he would have appeared to everyone else as the mad one. Lately, Rabbi Nachman's parable of the tainted harvest has haunted me. It's hard to look at our world or watch the news today without wondering whether our whole society has gone mad. Like Rabbi Nachman's time, ours is an era of profound instability. Perpetually warring ideological factions arm themselves not only with differing narratives about the past and visions for the future, the normal fields of ideological battle, but also increasingly with their own facts. Neither side believes nor trusts what the other one says or does. Both assume that the other is deranged or delusional, unable to comprehend why their intellectual opponents can't see what they perceive clear as day. It's not just that Democrats and Republicans liberals and conservatives can't find common ground on the solutions to the challenges that plague us. They can't even agree on what the problems are in the first place. Sometimes they even disagree about whether a particular issue exists. Typically, ideological diversity is a source of great strength, encountering different points of view, appreciating and learning from the beauty and wisdom of other cultures, provides us with perspectives we may not have considered before, pushes us to examine the foundations of our own beliefs, 
and helps us refine our own understandings. Arguably, it is our country's pluralism that has contributed to its historically unique ingenuity and progress. Respecting a multiplicity of perspectives and ways of being is one thing. But in today's America, it seems that any theory or belief can be claimed as factual if enough people fervently agree with it. That anything can be true if one believes it to be true. That right and wrong are entirely subjective. And that only information with which one agrees can be considered real information. Today's partisans routinely assume their side's facts are facts, while the other side's are merely claims or outright fictions. That their truths are true, while the other side's are propaganda, fake news, or hoaxes. We excuse words and deeds from our side that we would never forgive from our ideological opponents. Many of us look at the people around us and see a kind of collective madness, like the kind Rebbe Nachman envisioned in his parable. We see each other as having lost the ability to distinguish between fact and fiction, truth and falsehood, right and wrong, good and evil. History warns that democracy cannot endure this kind of tribal warfare, that a society descended into this kind of mass insanity will tear itself apart while cynical politicians and moneyed interests exploit the divisions for their own wealth and power. When reality itself is up for debate, people, especially those with wealth and power, can justify and do nearly whatever they want even the previously unthinkable. Recently, I read an analysis about the rise of authoritarianism in Putin's Russia called Nothing is True and Everything is Possible. The title perfectly encapsulates the dynamic I'm talking about. When leaders are given license to lie brazenly and deliberately, even about seemingly trivial things, over time, the definition of reality, along with the definition of morality, will come to depend entirely on the powerful person who makes it up. And actions that would typically be regarded as monstrous will cease to be seen as wrong and begin to be viewed as normal, at least in the eyes of those on the same, partisan, on the same side of the partisan divide. For the would-be authoritarian, anything is possible when nothing is true. The disintegration of a society's shared sense of reality not only poisons the body politic and threatens democracy, it is quite literally a matter of life and death. We Jews understand this better than most. Countless Jews have been murdered because people throughout history have believed, and God help us continue to believe, in conspiratorial lies about us. The fact that these conspiracies are both verifiably untrue and thoroughly deranged does not diminish their potential. New conspiracy theories like QAnon are similarly meeting, leading millions. Yes, you heard that right. Millions of our fellow Americans down an equally perilous path. QAnon basically, baselessly claims that a secret cabal of liberal political elites, business leaders, and Hollywood celebrities who are also Satan-worshipping pedophiles, strives for world domination. This twisted conspiracy has inspired violent vigilantes, 
and fueled coronavirus denialism, endangering us all. The threat only grows as candidates for high office and elected officials increasingly and alarmingly refuse to disavow, or worse, actively embrace QAnon. The growth of QAnon's influence is deeply disturbing, to be sure. But more worrisome is that it's not unique. In today's America, the acceptance of dangerous misinformation is no longer marginal. It has become commonplace. Millions of Americans, for example, refuse to vaccinate their children, deny the existence of climate change, and claim without evidence that there is rampant voter fraud. The widespread embrace of verifiable falsehoods leads people to engage in harmful behavior, endangers our republic, and imperils all of our lives. A world in which white nationalism can be just another of many valid ideas available in an open intellectual marketplace, in which a conflict between neo-Nazis and those who protest against them can feature very fine people on both sides, in which the relative danger of a highly contagious and deadly disease for which there's no known cure is a matter of debate, and which measures that verifiably prevent the transmission of that disease are routinely questioned and undermined, in which any black man is regarded as inherently suspicious, or in which any police officer is assumed to be racist, is a very dangerous world indeed. A mad world is unsafe for anyone and everyone. So, in a world gone mad, how do any of us know if we are actually among the same? And even if we are among the same, even if we can distinguish right from wrong and fact from falsehood, how do we navigate a world mired in mass delusion? Is there any way to coax it back from the brink? Is there any way to right the ship? There is no one easy answer, no simple solution that would in and of itself correct our current calamitous course. Our challenges are deep and systemic, pervasive and complex. Each of us as individuals has only a limited ability to affect the changes we so desperately need. So what can we do? The answer, I think, is embedded in Rebbe Nachman's story. Recall that the solution the king devises is that he and his vizier will both put signs on their foreheads in order to remind each other of their madness. The king hopes that seeing the signs will bring the pair back to reality, even if only temporarily, and that perhaps they will regain a more permanent grip on what is real in the fullness of time. At the very least, the king hopes that the signs will remind the pair of their relationship and their responsibilities toward one another. In our mad world, we, like the king and his vizier, can also utilize a sign to remind ourselves of what is real, and bring each other back towards sanity. Over time, perhaps this slow and painstaking act of reminding will steady and safeguard us all, ending our mass hysteria and initiating a reign of truth and justice. At the very least, the sign can remind us of our relationships with and of our responsibilities toward one another. What kind of sign? In bygone times, every monarch had their own unique sign, symbols that they would stamp on official documents. That way, subjects would recognize a decree's royal authority and know they must obey it 
According to Jewish tradition, just as human sovereigns have such signs, so too does God. What is God's identifying symbol? Over and again, our rabbis taught, The sign of the Holy One is truth. To discern truth is to know the divine. To worship God is to venerate truth. And truth, ultimately, is what will free us from our madness. The claim that God is truth and truth is God means exalting truth as our highest ideal and viewing the quest for truth as our most vaunted religious pursuit. Equating God with truth means that revering fact, insisting on veracity, and refusing to retreat an inch from demanding truth, especially from those in power, are sacraments. As a matter of religious practice, each of us has an obligation to learn the truth, to tell the truth, and to do everything we can to not repeat a falsehood, even inadvertently. This is harder than it sounds. Truth can be uncomfortable, even painful. Sometimes, especially in our mad world, it is difficult to discern fact from falsehood and information from propaganda, especially if a lot of other people believe the lie, if the lie is repeated often enough, or if the lie is confidently communicated by someone who appears authoritative. Additionally, we are naturally inclined to believe falsehoods when they are pleasant or personally beneficial. As Yale University professor of psychology, Jennifer Richeson recently wrote, the mind is a remarkable instrument, adept at many things, including self-delusion. Unfortunately, we are wired to believe reassuring falsehoods and to tell advantageous lies. Yom Kippur repeatedly emphasizes our tenuous relationship with truth. Kolni Dre, for example, both highlights the promises we make and alludes to the fact that we tend to break our vows. Who we say we want to be doesn't always align with who we actually are. The ideals we claim to uphold don't always match the ones we actually end up living by. What we promise to do is too often not what we actually do. The Yom Kippur liturgy is dominated by an acknowledgement of our propensity to say and believe falsehoods. In Ashamnu, 20% of the sins we confess are sins of speech. In the longer confessional, al Khait, we echo and elaborate upon these same sentiments, beating our chests for sinning in the way we speak, for defrauding others, for knowingly saying foolish things for false denials, for making empty promises, for betraying trust, and for our everyday conversations which are so often laden, whether intentionally or unintentionally, with, mis with misinformation and outright falsehoods. We even confess to the sin of empty confessions. A recognition as clear as any that for the most part, our words too often tend to be pretty hollow. Since we humans are naturally deceptive, we must swim upstream in order to be truthful. To be dedicated to honesty requires perpetual, concerted effort. We must push ourselves, for example, to engage our world with a critical eye, consuming media wisely, and participating in social media discerningly. 
when we learn new information, whether that be from a friend, a politician, or a TV show, we should always consider the perspectives, motivations, and qualifications of the person communicating the information, the reliability of the original source of the information, the quality and quantity of the evidence being offered to support the claim, and the existence of any contradictory evidence which would refute or cast doubt on the claim. To riff on the old Russian proverb, sometimes trust, always verify. A commitment to truth furthermore calls upon us to demand our leaders speak honestly and champion the reforms necessary to curtail the spread of venomous misinformation. Above all, to be dedicated to truth as a matter of religious principle means we must elevate education as a primary value. Education, of course, is among the highest ideals in the Jewish tradition, precisely because it is understood as the best safeguard against ignorance and our susceptibility to falsehood and deceit. But in Jewish tradition, education is not indoctrination. Its goal is not ideological uniformity. By and large, the Jewish approach to education is not about teachers asserting what they believe to be true and students blindly accepting their authority, nor is it about insisting that every student come to think exactly alike. Rather, Jewish education centers on developing the skills of critical thinking, thoughtful analysis, and reasoned debate. The skills necessary for students to discern truth on their own and in conversation with one another. And in turn, cultivating the ability to separate truth from falsehood and right from wrong is accomplished in Jewish tradition through dispute and dialogue. The Talmud, which is the most significant compilation of ancient Jewish law and lore, is in fact a chronicle of debate. It records over 5,000 arguments, only 50 of which are authoritatively resolved. And even then, minority opinions are presented alongside accepted positions. Truth is the goal, education is the way, and intellectual humility, analytical thinking, and productive debate are the prerequisites. It must be noted, however, that the respect for ideological diversity prevalent in rabbinic texts doesn't mean we must treat every perspective as equally valid. Indeed, the Talmud may record diverse opinions, but the rabbis who expressed them for the most part shared a deep and broad knowledge of Torah, as well as a desire to better understand what is right and true. Similarly, our collective pursuit of the truth should include as many diverse voices as possible. But we must insist that a certain threshold of rationality and logic is met, that arguments are rooted in and supported by empirically verifiable fact that baseless falsehoods are out of bounds and that all parties share the same constructive end of discerning what is right and true. If enough of us place God's sign of truth on our foreheads, if we remind each other to ground ourselves in fact, we just might find our way out of this mad world. If truth is our tradition's ideal, then Torah is how we seek and live out that ideal. According to Maimonides, the objective of Torah is twofold, the welfare of the mind and the welfare of the body. The welfare of the mind is about imparting truth, 
The Torah has long been understood as the text to which we as Jews turn for unearthing truths about ourselves and our world. Truths in turn which influence the way we live. This doesn't mean, by the way, that everything in the Torah is factual. On the contrary, the Torah, like other great literature, tells stories that may never have happened, or at least that may not have happened in the precise way the Torah describes. Rather, when we say things like, Asher natanlanu Torah emet, that God gave us a Torah of truth, we mean that through its narratives, poetry, and laws, the Torah asserts righteous values and offers truthful insights. For example, the Torah doesn't tell us that all of humanity descends from Adam and Eve to communicate a scientific fact about our origin as a species. Rather, through this story, the Torah asserts the value that every human life is infinitely precious and the truth that we are all ultimately related to one another. By the welfare of the body, Maimonides means that the Torah focuses on how we treat one another, how we organize our societies, and how we cultivate the moral qualities necessary to righteously navigate our interpersonal relationships and our political choices. Torah, and in particular the Torah system of mitzvot, gives us a structure for living out our responsibility not only to seek and speak the truth, but also to practice interpersonal kindness and pursue social justice. Practicing kindness requires us to act in a loving way toward our neighbors, as well as toward the stranger, toward those who are nearest to or most like us, and also, perhaps more importantly, for those who are not necessarily our neighbors, particularly those who belong to racial, religious, and ethnic minority groups, along with immigrants, the poor, and others who are vulnerable or chronically destitute because they are at special risk of exclusion and exploitation. The Torah's demand that we practice kindness toward others, especially toward the vulnerable people at society's margins, is founded upon its insistence that we recognize the divine image in every human, and that we remember at all times our historical experiences of oppression and suffering. Those same principles also undergird the Torah's demand that we build a just society. Advancing such a society, a fully inclusive and equitable society that reflects our belief in human equality and our aversion to cruelty, demands both administrative and distributive justice, equality for all under the law, and a fair allocation of resources. This kind of justice doesn't just happen. It requires our persistent efforts and our perpetual vigilance. That's why the Torah commands tzedek, tzedek, tirdof, justice, justice shall you pursue. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, may her righteous memory be a blessing, had this passage on the wall of her chambers because in her wisdom, she recognized that justice is not inevitable. It prevails only through the tenacious efforts of those who, like her, are dedicated to advancing it. Pursuing justice means working diligently to ensure that no person suffers want, that the distribution of resources is equitable, that no person suffers discrimination, persecution, or oppression because all are honored as equals, and that no person suffers from an unfair, an unfair verdict or unjust incarceration because judgment is fair and impartial. 
it strikes me that practicing kindness and pursuing justice are precisely how we navigate and repair our mad world. Even if we cannot distinguish fact from fiction or truth from falsehood, we can treat others, all others, every single one, the way we would want to be treated and work toward ensuring that everyone in our society has the ability to pursue the kind of lives we would want for ourselves and our children. If we are able to continuously remind ourselves and each other of our shared obligations to love one another and build a just society, then we will perpetually be able to see our world's madness, its incoherence, its inhumanity, and its injustice for the perversion it is. If we recognize it often enough, we will be moved to transform it and ourselves. Until that day comes, at the very least, we can support one another in times of need and advance a social order where there is no longer need. The madness so prevalent in our world causes many of us to be fearful, to get frustrated, to feel enraged, to sink into despair. This is all so understandable. Lately, I felt many of these emotions myself. But our tradition insists, and Yom Kippur reminds, that each and all of us have the potential to change the world's fate, that things as they are need not be the way they always must be. As Maimonides teaches in Hilchot Chuva, the laws of repentance, every deed, no matter how large or small, has the potential to tip the world's scales. One deed can plunge the world deeper into darkness, or it can help bring about the light. Even in a world gone mad, that choice, that power, is perpetually in our hands. A story is told about Rebbe Nachman of Bratislav the same Hasidic master who wove the parable of the tainted harvest. Once, one of Rebbe Nachman's students had harmed a loved one. He was overcome with guilt and despair. The damage had been done, he insisted. The wrongdoing could not be taken back. Feeling hopeless and helpless, he implored his teacher, is there anything I can do? And Rebbe Nachman answered, Imatam amin shiacholin lekalkel. If you believe you can break it, you must also believe you can repair it. We may indeed live in a mad world. We may even be among the madmen. But just as we know we can break our world through madness, we must also believe that we can restore it through righteousness. In the year to come, let us remind ourselves and each other to be servants of truth, practitioners of kindness, and pursuers of justice. In so doing, may we awaken our world from its madness and together repair it. Gemar Khatimatova. May we all be signed and sealed for a good year. 
This has been Socially Distant, Spiritually Close with Rabbi Michael Knopf. I hope that this episode has helped you find a little faith and hope, enrichment and uplift during this complex and challenging time. If you haven't already, please subscribe on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. That way you won't miss an episode. Please also rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice so that others will have an easier time finding us and joining in the conversation. Socially Distant, Spiritually Close is recorded during virtual gatherings of my congregation, Temple Bethel in Richmond, Virginia. Socially Distant, Spiritually Close is produced by Dr. Gillian Frank. Our theme music is composed and produced by Stephen Frost. Our cover art was designed by Judith Russian using a photograph by Miriam Aniel. I have been your host, Rabbi Michael Knopf. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other.